Amazing mercy, amazing grace, amazing love. Thank you, Daniel, Martha. Our great God that we serve, a God that has loved us, who loves us, who continues to, a God in whom we can trust. Continuing in our series this morning on questions, and we've come to this next question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And so before, before we begin, let's bow in prayer and ask God's help to understand His Word today. Gracious God, we thank You for who You are, for the revelation of Yourself. And Lord, I pray that in this time, You would undertake for us not only a knowledge and understanding, but You would do so by Your grace and mercy do that heart, heart work that needs to be done so that we see you as you are. The grace that you have shown to us and the revelation of yourself through your word. And Father, would you superintend my words? They are not important, but your word is eternally settled in heaven. And I pray that it would accomplish the work today, even as you have promised to do so. And so in our time. We dedicate this to you, by your grace, by your mercy, by your love, we are here. Speak to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This week, my wife and I had the opportunity to dip into the emergency fund and to replace a 15-year-old refrigerator. What a joy. Uh, You know, so we did what every good American does. We went to the internet and began to research. I was in one room, she was the other. Have you seen this one? And, you know, I really decided that as much as it would have been fun to have a screen on my door and and watch the internet or something while I was getting water or ice, it wasn't really economical to have that. So Samsung got the the push aside. Uh, And we looked at a lot of things, and finally we went to lunch and decided to stop by Jeff Lynch and... uh, no, no ad, advertising dollars are spent here. Um, and, and pick out the one that was our price range and uh, the one that we were familiar with. Even though the guy who came to repair said, don't buy a Frigidaire, we decided we went to the one that we knew with 15 years of good service, and we went Frigidaire. And so after two weeks, we finally have a refrigerator. So, yeah. We had an ice bucket. We were... Uh, keeping cream, and, you know, we finally gave up on the milk. It was kind of fun. But, you know, many of us pride ourselves in going and researching the evidence. And so as we went, you know, Consumer Reports, of course, Amazon Reviews, we looked through all of this, and uh, we tried to find what was best for us. And we looked through those things and, and researched, I think, pretty well. Um, I, we're, we're happy in the two days, we've, three days we've had it now, two, since Friday, uh, we're, we're pretty happy. It, it does make ice. It does create water, and and the milk is cold. So that's all we really care. We really care about. And so as we, we as I thought about this this idea, this concept this week of of evidence and of researching evidence, and how it was reminded to me this week of what we are to do, I, I thought about our series and. Um, the next step here, can we trust the Bible? Because at the heart of this, we must examine the evidence. We are told a lot of things. You can get a review on Amazon, 
and uh, it may either trash a product or praise a product, but you don't really know until you have examined it and touched it and, and, and tried out the product. And in the same way, we can hear something from someone say, I think I know this about the Bible, whether it be a preacher or whether it be a skeptic asking questions, but until we genuinely come to the point of investigation ourselves, we're only taking someone's word for that. This morning, I want to go through, and unfortunately it's a brief time, okay? We're going to cram a lot in. And I intend this week to give you a list of resources uh, from which all of these talks have been coming from uh, for this month of questions so that you can understand, you can go research yourself, lots of books, lots of articles, things that I think will find really important. But this morning, I want you to evaluate the evidence. Come with an open mind, this. We have been um, broadcasting this as a, uh, a, an opportunity for those who are skeptics, who, who may not agree or know or understand or believe in God, the Bible, Jesus, an opportunity for them to hear evidence and facts. An opportunity for believers also to, uh, to gather more information for us as we speak to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. And so for you who know Christ and who believe this, this will be good for us to understand and not just say, oh, this is what I believe, but this is the evidence that God has given to us. It's important. Evaluate. Open mind. Sam Harris is a popular atheist writer um, and a speaker. He, his, he wrote a book called The End of Faith. He said this in his book, Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that a frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. However, tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. Mark Clark in his book, Problem of God, quotes Sam Harris here. And sometimes we as believers say, just believe us, just trust us. What is our evidence? For you who are questioning, what is the evidence that it's important to you? Is there evidence for the reliability? Can we trust the Bible? So two areas I want to, I want to hit broadly this morning. Uh, the first area really is the, the consistency and reliability of Scripture, of the Bible. It's consistent and it's reliable. Secondly, I want us to understand that it is coherent and gives to us a unified narrative. So there's, it's not just information on the page, but this all ties together and is a narrative from which we can understand and learn. So, consistency, reliability, and then a coherence of narrative. So, as we begin, number one, the Bible is a consistent and reliable document. And that's one of the first questions. What about the historicity of the Bible? How is it that it is, had come to be, and why should we trust it? So many years ago it was written. Why is it relevant now? Is it reliable? Well, the Bible, 66 books, written by nearly 40 authors over a time period of about 1,500 years. 66 books, nearly 40 authors, 1,500 years. 
How is that consistent and reliable through all of this? Well, if you start to understand this, this, what God has done, the Bible provides for us philosophy, morality, theology, obviously, and history. All of these are discussed in a consistent manner across all of those books, all of those authors, all of those years. It seems remarkable. And it also gives us a schema of of understanding of a narrative. So here it is. Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, claims that there are more than 4,000 errors in the Bible. But first of all, we must understand that he's not just talking about one-to-one errors. That is, 4,000 separate errors or instances in the Bible. Instead, he, he uses this number. He's referring to the number of copies of whatever text he's arguing. Say he believed there's a problem in one word in Matthew 16, 4, and we have um, 30 different copies of the original manuscript from, from, the time, from that time. He would count that as uh, not one problem, but 30 problems. And so, uh, as, you, as you look about this, Craig Blomberg points out that one, using that logic, can say that since Ehrman's book has uh, produced 1.6 copies or sold that, and he has 16 typos, that's 1.6 million Error. So understand, people throw out numbers, there's 400,000 errors, but when you boil them down, really isn't the case. It's an exaggeration for this. So let's, let's work through this. Um, so what about these contradictions, these errors? Well, uh, many of you know local hero Dan Olinger. Uh, Dan's, and I'm going to link to this in the, uh, in the resources, Dan's actually been writing a blog, I think recently, I just found out it was there, um, and we've had Dan speak to us, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. It's been a while, maybe ten, almost. And, uh, but he has written a, a series of articles, a blog post, on this idea. And he looks at the basic scholarly errors often made when you claim contradictions. And so I am borrowing from Dan on this, these errors, and we're going to flesh some of them out fully, others and let you go research on this. Number one is depending only on, a English, on an English translation. translation. Sometimes you have errors there who only, uh, and you look at them, and you go to the original languages, and you say, oh, that's not an error at all, that's an error in translation. And so sometimes we have contradiction, well, it says here, and this, and that, well, you go, you do a little more research underneath, and you see this. Well, some of them you look at transcription errors, this is an example um, of the, uh, in Solomon, the number of, you can see a transcription, 40,000 horses, or is it 4,000 horses? Um, and you look in the two different places, and you look to see that um, even though the scribes were very careful, one scribe would, would be copying, would have two on his shoulders, that is transcription error. And you can see, okay, the logic error doesn't change any of Scripture, but there are those things that are there, very minute, but there are a few like that. But sometimes people claim contradictions when they're not paying attention um, and, and really, uh, really not paying attention to the context. So people say, okay, and you'll hear this one. Well, it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.15, is that the spiritual person judges all things. In the context, he's talking about uh, discerning what a, a spirit, the Spirit teaches the believer, discerning if it's the Spirit that's teaching. But in 1 Corinthians 4.5, he tells the Corinthians not to judge. That's a contradiction. Well, when you start to look at the context of the second one, he says, don't, he's, he's talking about not making decisions before time. Let it have all the information before this. And so it's not a contradiction at all. So if we don't pay, pay attention to the context, we don't take a little careful reading there, 
then we would say claim a contradiction where there is no contradiction. Sometimes uh, contradictions are claimed just with cultural ignorance of, of the time. And this is, uh, there's really too many examples to go into. But we don't take a time to examine the culture to gather the information and the understanding. And the problem is sometimes we look through our own cultural lens. Have you noticed that? Even between generations from parents to children. Parents have one cultural lens we look through. The children come through and well, no, that's not what that means. It was a reference to, to something this morning when we were setting up. Um, and it was like an older reference. I won't say who it was because first it's not necessarily old, but it was a reference that probably someone you know, we don't use now. It's kind of like saying, um, most of you know what a typewriter is, but who's ever used one who's under 25? Okay, <laughs> so cultural references, when you understand that. The, the next thing that, that he points out is sometimes we look at childish literalism. Um, we make contradiction when we're saying things that are so literal that, wait, careful reading of the Scripture is not the same. Recognize when the author is using a metaphor. Okay? Um, one that, that Dan points out. He says the, the serpent in, in Genesis will, will eat the dust of the ground. And he points out, you know, when, when we're racing, he said, if I were a racer um, and I was driving a car, I, when I say eat dust, as Dan would say it in his way, I'm not making uh, nutritional recommendations. Okay? And if we take things that are childishly literal and not looking at what the author is saying in the context, then we, we might say, claim a contradiction where there is none. And then we have to understand the eyewitness perspective. Say, well, one gospel writer says this, but one gospel writer says that. Well, the eyewitness in the perspective of that. I'm going to go through this a little bit later, so I won't stay on it too long. And then the roundness of character. Um, this is something you may have learned in a round character in, in English in high school. Okay, that doesn't mean head too much at the buffet. Uh, this is, well, is God a God of war, as it says in Exodus, or is he a God of peace, as it says in Romans 15? Hey, can he be both? Well, it depends on where you stand with him. For those who reject him, he will be a God of war. For those who receive him, he's a God of peace. And I think the, the most significant error that we make often is to impose our standards of the text, those standards that we don't impose, impose upon ourselves. We say it has to be this way when we ourselves are contradicting and are often not logical in our, in our own reasonings. Let's take an example of the gospel in Acts, just to kind of give you the reliability of, of, God's, of God's word. Uh, two things that we ne- neglect to take into account. Jesus more than likely told the parables more than once. Right? He's, if you understand, he's, he's speaking on the hillside. He's going from town to town. He's telling parables. If I were to preach the message twice, and I don't know that I have, but understand when you tell a story, sometimes you emphasize different things. Same story, same facts, but you might emphasize to someone uh, one th- thing that's more important because of their perspective, and to another person telling the story, you would emphasize another thing of, of a perspective. And this is what Jesus is doing. When he's talking to, often to the uh, Pharisees, he, he speaks one way. When he's talking to the crowds, uh, as he said at one point, they're like sheep without a shepherd, he speaks to them another way. Maybe the same story. Understand that. But also, um, but the authors had different perspectives in the Gospels. They were speaking and writing 
from, from different perspectives. Matthew, as his perspective, he wants us to see that the Jesus is the long-awaited king. And so as he recounts the, the, the stories of, uh, and the, the works of Jesus, he always points to that and brings that to light. Whereas Mark is quite different, and as he writes, the perspective of Jesus is different. Matthew is king. Let me catch up with my slides. Mark, the suffering servant. He wants us to see that this one that Isaiah spoke of is this Jesus, this one. About Luke, he's chronicling the days of the Son of Man, the, the historian, as he writes very carefully, as he does so also in Acts. And John, the God is, Jesus is God in the flesh. So from different perspectives, they write and communicate to us. And we see and understand that those different perspectives play a role in the accounts of the writers and what they choose to give us. And so the Gospels give us a very brightly colored mosaic. It's not just one color from one writer. It's the four accounts filling in the beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is. So we understand what he's doing. But also, I think we understand, number two, the Bible is a coherent and unified narrative. Coherent and unified narrative. Often, someone will bring up the differences, and maybe you have thought this yourself, of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And how maybe the Christians don't meet the standards of the Old Testament, or don't always practice as the Old Testament prescribes. And so that is a very a clear thing to understand as you start to look at Scripture as coherent and narrative. So what about the ceremonial laws? Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat pork. But Stacy, I saw you at the, uh, at the Mutt's Buffet last Sunday, and you were eating pork. Yes, and I was enjoying it greatly. So why didn't the New Testament emphasize the same ceremonial laws, the dietary laws? Well, understand, what is the Old Testament? Well, it's the 39 books of the 66. Those two sections, we have the Old Testament or Covenant and the New Testament or Covenant. See, the Old Testament was given to a specific nation, the nation of Israel. And the Old Testament was called in the Hebrew the Tanakh. And really, Tanakh is an acronym the T, the A, uh, the T, the N, the K. The Torah was the teaching, the T there. It was a teaching, the first five books that we have of the Old Testament. And in it, the writer um, brings to us the, the works of Christ, of, 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 of God, as he points to, in the first couple of chapters, the one who would come after the fall of man. Kind of a, a foreshadowing of what happened, that one that would have its heel bruised, but would bruise the head of the serpent. And it begins, and we see the rise of iniquity and the, as the rise of people, of sin. And then we see the flood. And we see God raising up a family from that flood and again providing for them. And then he brings out Abraham. And he says, I will make of you a great nation. And he makes covenants with them along the way. And here's the Torah. And we find out, and, and it comes to the, to the Mount Sinai and the Mosaic covenant as he, as he brings the law to them. And as he's pointing out that to please God, you must keep all of this law. And this nation of Israel to keep it perfectly. 
And as we read this, we say, we could never keep that perfectly. Wow, that was so hard. So he provides atonement at certain times of the year. Sin offerings. And then that final day of atonement, he would offer the, the priest would offer the sacrifice. And so God, God lays this all out. But then we see that every year we have to do this. There's no perfect sacrifice. And then he goes to the, to the next section of that Nevi'im, the prophets, the spokesperson, and he, and he fills out in more color and detail of the work of God through the people of Israel. We have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all these prophecies that come through. And he has the, the next, the K, the Kethuvim. And so we have the writings, the poetry, the stories of the kings, wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, and also Chronicles. And it's the story of men, the story of God, the rise and fall of men, the promising beginning, yet a disappointing ending. Never was quite as God intended man. Never came to the point. As you look through the kings and and you see a good king, but then a bad king. Constantly, just like the book of the Judges, of righteousness and then turning away. Righteousness and then a falling away. And you see, and only through the Old Testament we see clearly that it is not possible in our own strength to keep the full law of God. But in the Old Testament you also see that it points to one who does keep and fulfill that law, it points to this one who would set all things right. It points to this one in prophecy, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even from David to Moses, this one that would come and that would provide atonement once and for all. It points to a new covenant. Jeremiah writes in 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was like a husband to them. But this covenant which I make, will make with the house of Israel for those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within their hearts. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There it is. This new covenant all points to this. Paul writes later on in Galatians that the, the law was like a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead us to Jesus. We see Christ as the fulfillment, and that's where the New Testament comes in. It brings to full bloom the story of Jesus, the Messiah. This New Testament. And the Gospels are the best attested documents in antiquity. We have the New Covenant here. This one of Jesus. And what was prophesied some uh, six to seven hundred years ago in Isaiah comes to pass. In Isaiah 7 and 14 and later on in 53, we see these most clearly defined of who Jesus is. And as He fulfills these prophecies. Not in part, but in full. As he fulfills this, we begin to understand that this document is not just some um, meanderings and, and, and thoughts of some 
crazy person, but a prophet was led and directed and spoke of things that would happen in the future in the person of Jesus Christ. The laws of the Old Testament, he said, I came to fulfill, to complete. And things began to change in the relationship with God. There's an era and a time of grace through faith in Him. Things changed. We think most notably of dietary laws. Peter, after Christ has been resurrected, after he's ascended, and Peter sees a vision. And it says there, a sheet was laid down, I think it's a tablecloth. No. Um, and, and, and in his vision, he sees all these animals. And the voice says to him, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. No, no. No self-respecting Jew would eat of these things because of our dietary law. And the voice comes from God, what I have declared clean. Those things I have declared clean, eat. No longer consider unholy. Jesus had completed the law. Jesus brought this to pass. And so the New Testament begins with the story of Jesus by the gospel writers, a diverse set of people. And so as he does, he brings the story of Jesus, God does, through these. And then the book of Acts. You know, the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, is the best attested by the sheer uh, of, of the documents of antiquity. If you think about this... Um, Eusidides, in the history of the Peloponnesian War, he lived 460 to 365 B.C. He wrote of Greco-Roman culture. And as he wrote, um, what he, re- he wrote, most scholars trust. They trust in a great way. But we have eight copies of his writings. The closest transcribed copy of his writing was 1,300 years after he lived. But yet, scholars receive his word as truth accurate reflection of his time. There are five copies of Aristotle's poetics. They date 1,400 years after he penned the originals. And yet, we scholars trust them. Caesar's Gaelic Wars describes events in 58 BC. The few manuscripts we have are from 1,000 years after his death. There are two ancient biographies of Alexander the Great that are seen as authoritative and fully accurate the earliest of these were written at 400 years after Alexander died. Yet historians trust all of these documents. But let's contrast this with the New Testament. There are over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence. Some are partial, some are full. 25,000. 25,000 is you understand the number of of manuscripts that are there. These are manuscripts that can be compared. They can be contrasted. How does this one, oh, these line up. It reminds me of of what we learned in uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were were found. As they began uncovering, they had the Masoretic text, and now years before the Masoretic text, we have the same text in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Verification. Interesting, God let those be found of the Old Testament about the time when textual criticism, the higher critics were were starting to say, oh, the Old Testament is not true. Uh, We don't have an early enough record of it, and so God provided an even earlier record of the Old Testament that matched. Number of of manuscripts, really overwhelming number compared to most historical documents that scholars hold to be true. But I think the next thing 
not only the number of manuscripts, but the short timeline that, that occur between the actual events and the writing of the events. So a short timeline, that's important. So um, Frederick uh, Kenyon, uh, formerly of the British Museum, concludes that in no other case is the internal time between the composition of a book and the date of the earliest extant manuscript so short as that in the New Testament. Short timeline. Now, why is that important? Well, it's very important because if I'm writing a book of you, and you're alive, and I'm using people in your family and your friends that are alive, if I write in any error, you're going to say, wait a second, your Amazon review is going to be really, um, you're going to trash me, it's going to be no stars, okay? There are eyewitnesses. There are eyewitnesses to the truth here. When Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul writes, he talks about the resurrection. He says, all these people who have seen it, and the disciples, he said, and even me, I've seen the risen Christ, even as one born out of due time. But he also says, there are other 500 people who have seen the risen Christ, many of whom are still alive, as if to say, go ask them if you doubt my record. As these men are writing the New Testament, they're writing before critics who could say, this is true or this is not true. Those are the things in which we draw our New Testament, that God has preserved in such a way. You, know, you hear there's a lot of errors in the New Testament. There are 20,000 lines of text in the New Testament. And only 40 of those lines have any question about them at all. And most are questions of various variations in the text. Uh, no, no significant meanings. So maybe a, a, a letter change or... Uh, a word order change. The variations that remain after those have no major doctrine that is affected or built upon those texts. Everything that we hold true in Christianity on those 40 lines are well attested in the rest of Scripture. And so timeline is important. Timeline is important. We, we get the work that God has given to us of the New Testament. We receive it from those who wrote it in the time of Christ, in the time of the disciples, even the disciples themselves, to people, to be read by people who would be able to go and factually discover if what they were writing was true. New Testament writers name specific names of towns. Geography is important. They get the geography correct. They get the details. Talk about Simon the Cyrene who who carries the cross, and talk about his sons by name, as if to say, go ask them. Go see. See if this is not true. And, and here in this short timeline, in this, these manuscripts, the writers don't sugarcoat the narrative. Were I writing a story about my group and my people, I would, I would erase the bad things about me, but I, we see Peter and all of his flaws. We see the other we see Paul saying, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm a wretch. They didn't sugarcoat the narrative. We see the disciples fleeing in fear from the garden. We see Jesus sweating and crying out and, and agonizing before crucifixion. They were accurate. The accuracy depended upon the people who read them. 
and he understood and verified. The epistles and the letters after the Acts of the Apostles, you see the beginning, the birth of the church, and then the, the disciples write letters to different churches, again, to be read, to be examined. Letters to a church or letters to an individual, Philemon. All these have dire situations of persecution, as, as Peter writes. Letters of encouragement, letters of a teaching, all designed to more fully reveal Christ and who He is and how He changes lives and how His grace is sufficient. The Apostle Peter, at once brash, now writing in his later days, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's important. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, speaking of the disciples, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars arises in our your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of the matter of one's interpretations, own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Peter attests that he saw the risen Christ. He speaks of him And that what he wrote was not from his own human will, but God moved on these writers, even on Peter, to write what God wanted. Even our our recent study of 1 John, uh, remember the first four verses. For what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he's speaking of Jesus and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was manifested to us. And what we have seen, and what we have heard, we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. He writes. He says, these, this is what... We, we saw, we are eyewitnesses, but it's eyewitnesses not of our, what we desire to say, but of the one for whom we desire to lift up before you, this one who is Jesus. And then Jesus himself, Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what we have here is a group of 66 books and nearly 400 authors, uh, near 40 authors, wow, over 1,500 years guided by the hand of a divine author and editor. One who stitches together the narrative of God's love, of God's glory, of God's rescue of man and the person of Jesus Christ, all pointing to him. You see, this unified whole, this narrative, is the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of, of this one, God himself, who came to earth, 
To live as a man would live. To suffer hunger. To suffer pain. To suffer anguish. To sorrow. Yet without any sin. Fully God. Fully man. Yet without sin. He. His sacrifice on the cross. His death on the cross. His resurrection. His ascension. Sufficient for you and for me. But what the law could not do. Jesus completed in Himself, providing a way, a way of atonement, a way of rescue. It's the narrative of the Bible. It's the narrative of Jesus Christ. This morning I've walked you admittedly through a very rapid overview of Scripture. An evidence which I hope you will see of why you can trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because of the evidence I see of a divine author and editor. I trust the Bible because it's consistent and reliable. It's attested to by historical facts. It's attested to by historians of the same time. It's attested to in a reliable and then a coherent narrative of Jesus. Son of God bringing rescue. And I present this to you as evidence of a God, of His work in our human history. The evidence of Jesus Himself, which will be next week. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious God, I thank You for who You are, the power of Your Word. Lord, we thank You for preserving it for us. No other document in history has been preserved like this. Nothing comes close. And it is by your hand we see this over and over again. And so I pray, O God, that as you are here today working hearts, if there be those who are here who are skeptical of your work and of what you have done, would you open their eyes to the understanding of, of what you have done, provided for them. Lord, may, them, may they start to see the narrative of Jesus, this one that was foretold in the garden, broke into human history with rescue and redemption for sinful men and women. May they see Jesus through this. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts, even as we read it, call us to greater understanding and greater faith in you. For those of us who are believers, may we take encouragement from how you have preserved your word. May we draw strength and boldness that we might love with the love of Jesus. We minister with his grace and with his mercy. And that we through our lives may show the glorious Savior who has worked so mightily in our hearts. Lord, may you be seen through your word and through us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Would you keep your head?